Welcome to Noise in the Groove, the origin of sound recording. I'm Ramzi Janini, and this is episode 3, The Reading List. In this episode, we'll take a brisk walk through the streets of our historical neighborhood that some call Sound Studies. We'll stop for a drink at Technological Determinism Plaza before ending up back at our little cul-de-sac to continue work on this little house of our own. We'll also introduce ourselves to the neighbors, as is only polite. After all, if you don't say hello within the first five days or so, it does start to become a little awkward later on. However, I do want to hold off on our housewarming party until the development of subwoofers and preventive medication for bad music, if you catch my drift. I have to warn you, this episode is going to be academic in tone, as I'll be speaking about the ideas and research of the historians and philosophers who have informed and influenced the way I think about recorded sound, and who more or less taught me everything I know about it. In other words, I'm taking you to meet the family. After all, they say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. But if you don't like apples, which I don't think I've ever heard apart from PC gamers maybe, feel free to skip ahead to episode 4, where we set off on our journey again. However, I recommend you stick around, as we're going to consider a few stimulating ideas and personalities in the next 20 minutes or so. An old adage states that if we can see further, it's because we're dwarves on the shoulders of giants. Tomorrow, to borrow from Herzog, we'll stride boldly with our giant into caves of forgotten dreams. But today, we'll tickle our giant's earlobe, whisper sweet nothings, and try to get to know her a bit. I want you to know where I'm coming from, ideologically speaking, before we really get into things, as well as provide you with a collection of names and ideas you can follow up on if you're interested in studying any of these topics in greater depth. But then come back here, because this podcast isn't just a summary of the books and writers I'm about to mention. It features original research and source materials that I look forward to sharing with you. So, let's begin the neighborhood tour by getting a few boring uncles out of the way. Never you mind these mixing metaphors. What this podcast is not going to be, which I hope is clear by now, is a history focusing solely on what we might call the biographical details of the phonograph and, and gramophone. You know, the story of how its parents met, where it was born, what it got up to as a teenager, its first heartbreak, and so on. That story has already been told, and quite thoroughly, I must say. If you do want that story, I can recommend two veritable classics, Reed and Welch's From Tinfoil to Stereo, first published in 1959, and Roland Gillette's The Fabulous Phonograph, from 1955. That's not to say I won't be sharing such information, it just won't be the be-all and end-all. Another similarly well-trodden path is that of the history of recorded music, and if you're interested in this history, Well, there are quite a few options, but I really like Greg Milner's Perfecting Sound Forever, the story of recorded music, uh, which was published in 2010. I found it to be a very readable and entertaining exploration of the history and function of the studio, the transition from analog to digital, as well as why, if you grew up before during the 1990s, you stopped enjoying the sound of new rock and pop music sometime around the release of the Chili Peppers' Californication. Spoiler alert, compression. Another book I want to mention is the autobiography of Fred Gaysberg, who we mentioned last episode. Fred was one of the very first of the breed that we now call record producers, although he sort of invented the job description. 
He was an American who went to London in order to, amongst other projects, record stars from the operatic world in Europe for both American and European markets. He famously recorded Caruso, amongst other celebrated artists, but he also recorded lesser-known figures such as Alessandro Moreschi, the Angel of Rome, the last icon of the great and holy tradition of castrati singing. We will definitely be getting to these recordings at some point, as they are all we have of this lost tradition. Anyhow, I recommend Fred's autobiography called Music on Record, as it offers an intriguing first-hand account of the origins of the recorded music industry, as well as his early travels with the talking machine across a colonized world. It's not exactly Tolstoy, but it's a fun and revealing read from a voice of the time. Well, the literature I've discussed so far outlined a detailed technical and commercial history of the phonograph and gramophone, but it did not, on the whole, engage profoundly with their cultural and social dynamics. As we discussed in the last episode, this history of sound recording is as much a history of sound in the voice itself as it is a history of technology. That is to say that our story is about how these sound recording technologies were implicated within changing ideas and functions of sound and voice within society. In recent decades, historians have been exploring similar angles with respect to our other less exalted senses, notably smell, but also taste, touch, and so on. Ah, can you smell that? I got mixed feelings about the smell of history in the morning. You know, one time I sat in an archive for 12 hours. The smell, you know, the, the musty smell, the whole archive, it smelled like futility. Up to now, I've purposely left out Vision, the undisputed champion of the senses as far as a historical record goes. I've done so because historians researching the non-visual often justify their work in part as a redress to the historical imbalance towards the visual in Western epistemology and historiography. They're quick to point out that one manifestation of this historical imbalance is that even our metaphors for describing knowledge and understanding are so often visual, such as pointing out the Enlightenment, the Dark Ages, perspective, viewpoint, and so on. Do you see what they mean? Joachim Ernst Berendt, in his book The Third Ear, on listening to the world, called for a democracy of the senses, suggesting that the preeminence of vision in the West has obscured, another visual term, understandings and interpretations of history and society that could have been made based on our other senses. I think some of these arguments, while attractive, can be overstated, especially when considering that recent investigations of vision as a sense per se have been just as innovative and insightful as have explorations of our other senses. French philosopher Jean Foucault's discussion of English philosopher Jeremy Bentham's Panopticon comes to mind. Bentham is perhaps best known for his work in utilitarianism, you know, the greatest good for the greatest number, and in this noble vein he came up with a design for an ideal prison. His concept was for the prison cells to be arranged in a semicircular fashion centering on a guard tower. The design would not only prevent prisoners from being able to communicate with anyone else, but would more importantly allow the entire prison to be monitored by one guard. Of course, the guard wouldn't be able to watch everyone at once, but the point is that the prisoners would never be able to tell if they were or weren't being watched, and so would always act as if they were being watched. After a while, the guard wouldn't need to be there at all, and the system would continue functioning perfectly well. Foucault, in his monumental 1975 work, Discipline and Punish, discusses in part how in so many ways Bentham's prison became a model or prophecy for governmental developments of the 19th century, within which lines of vision became mechanisms of self-subjugation and control. 
The straight camera-lined streets and open-plan offices of my lifetime certainly come to mind. And in the same way, in early fiction and prose, the phonograph was described as a harbinger of an era when mechanical ears would ensure that nothing said was safe. Which brings us back to sound. So, have you listened recently? As I was writing, I could hear barking dogs, a neighbor listening to New Zealand reggae, a roaring airplane, crowing rooster or two, water rushing through pipes. So I'll give you a few seconds to listen to your soundscape. Mine is silent now. While the landscape has for centuries been a common point of reference for academics and artists alike, the soundscape has been a much more recent preoccupation. The origin of the term soundscape is usually credited to R. Murray Schaefer, who in his 1977 work The Soundscape coined many of the terms and concepts that would inform and inspire a new generation of historians interested in sound. One such historian is Alan Corbin, whose 1999 book Village Bells explored the significance of bells in the social and commercial structures of villages of the 19th century French countryside. How quaint. Another notable devotee is Emily Thompson, whose 2002 The Soundscape of Modernity argued that the modern American soundscape transformed radically in the early 20th century, and that these changes were technological in nature. Well, we're definitely going to build a house on this street, exploring similar interrelationships between sound and society. But we'll be building right next to Friedrich Hitler. He's no longer with us, by the way. He passed away, as we say, in October of 2011 in a Berlin hospital, surrounded by the machines that had been supporting his life. His final words were said to be, Alle Apparate ausschalten, which translates as, switch off all apparatuses. These words gain poignant intensity when you learn about his life's work, which traces a history of media technologies not as extensions of man, in the Marshall McLuhan sense, but rather as autonomous entities that have superseded humanity to the extent that, and I quote, all that remains of people is what media can store and communicate. Thus, for Kittler, the predominance of the visual in Western historiography was, I presume, simply an artifact of text as a historically dominant form of information transfer. With no other technological competition, the written and spoken word was all there was, and, communicatively speaking, all other senses existed through it. Kittler's work describes a technological path that began with the handwritten word, diverged through technology such as the gramophone, film, and typewriter, and eventually coalesced in the zeros and ones of the digital age. These changes have constructed our contemporary situation where, and I quote from Gil Partington's obituary for Kittler, we are not sovereign subjects but merely a function of media. And later, distinctions between visual, audio, and written data may still exist for the purposes of human operatives, but this is only a superficial concession to the limitations of our senses and understanding. In reality, Technology no longer speaks our language. Humanity, always incidental to the communications network, is now out of the loop, as ever more powerful computers trade data with one another. So let's return again to his final words, switch off all apparatuses. Between his diverse and engaging cultural references and wonderful descriptions, for example calling typewriters the machine guns of text, I personally find his writing as entertaining as it is intellectually gripping. Gramophone film typewriter is quite simply essential reading for anyone interested in media technologies in the way that I am. As I alluded to in the first episode, for Kittler, the phonograph imposed an epochal change on the state of reality. In storing the raw, unfiltered noise of reality, 
which the preceding symbolic systems of writing had been incapable of. It was storing the very time flow of data and reproducing time itself. This observation has already been a starting point for us, and it's also a justification why this technology is worth thinking about and reflecting upon in the first place. So, what's the deal? Do technologies control and define us, or do we control and define technologies? Can the phonograph really be said to have in and of itself changed our state of reality? This issue was notably addressed through the medium of sound recording by the Neoplatonic Welsh collective Goldie Look and Chain, who, in response to a documentary by BBC Two, posited that guns don't kill people, rappers do. This debate is called technological determinism, and arguments in support of it are often categorized as hard or soft. Hard determinists tend to argue two things. Firstly, that technological development follows a path of its own logic, mostly beyond cultural or political influence. And moreover, that technology in turn has effects on societies that are intrinsic rather than conditioned. Other thinkers, such as Goldie Look and Chain, take the completely opposite view that technology in and of itself does nothing at all, and that all technological agency can ultimately be traced back to culturally conditioned human actions. Well, in bona fide B-student mode, I'm going to say that I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. And luckily for me, I have fully certified smart people to back me up. Uh, this is called soft determinism. And the soft determinists find a balance between these two extremes. They grant technological material at least an analytical agency in explaining historical change. And my approach to the phonograph, at least, is in line with Thomas Hughes's notion of technological momentum. For Hughes, the decisions of individuals are crucial as technological systems are initially developed, but become less relevant as technological systems grow in size and complexity. That sounds about right, doesn't it? If Marx has thought that the hand mill gives you the feudal lord and the steam mill the industrial capitalist is a common point of reference for the technological determinism debate, his quote that the forming of the five senses is the labor of the entire history of the world down to the present is equally fundamental for the second body of literature central to this project, a history of the idea of sound and hearing. Kittler's work comprises one grimly techno-deterministic bookend of this podcast, but it's balanced on the other end by the equally compelling, though comparatively cheerful and humanistic work of Jonathan Stern. Stern, largely in the book we mentioned before, The Audible Past, explores and describes the ways in which 19th century audio technologies were themselves products and manifestations of culture. His research, along with Kittler's, it must be said, helps us understand the puzzle that stumps a fictional Edison in Villiers de Il Adams, he's going to be Villiers from now on, 1886 novel The Future Eve, or Tomorrow's Eve in some translation. Sorry about that pronunciation. Anyway, here is the quote. What is most surprising in history, almost unimaginable, this is my Edison voice, by the way, is that among all the great inventors across all the centuries, not one of them thought of the phonograph, and yet most of them invented machines a thousand times more complicated. The phonograph is so simple that its construction owes nothing to materials of scientific composition. Abraham might have built it, and made a recording of his calling from on high. A steel stylus, a leaf of silver foil, or something like it, a cylinder of copper, and one could fill a storehouse with all the voices of heaven and earth. Stern's work, The Audible Past, Cultural Origins of Sound Reproduction, addresses the question of why sound reproduction technologies appeared when and where they did, tracing histories of European and later American understandings of sound as a mechanical wave and eardrums as processors of sound waves. 
Stern contextualizes the development of the technical and behavioral components of 19th century audio technologies within broader historical processes of sound and hearing becoming specific objects of scientific knowledge. Within that sweeping narrative, Stern isolates ways in which, for example, discourses framing cultural practices such as embalming relate to conceptions of the phonograph as a preserver of the voice, as we mentioned in the last episode. In the audible past, Stern is critical of categorizations of sound that assume a transhistorical experience of sound in the human body as categories outside history that imply that, and I quote, the voice and the body existed in some prior holistic, unalienated, and self-present relation. So when I speak about an embodiment and disembodiment of sound, I'm not arguing that these technologies physiologically ruptured an objective and ahistorical unity. Rather, I argue that it is significant that people of the time thought that they did. I'm concerned with an embodiment and disembodiment of sound precisely because hearing, listening, and the voice are historical problems, and not in spite of the fact. Stern's solution to a self-identified problem was to discuss sound reproduction technologies of the late 19th century as transducers, objects that change sound from one thing to another and back again. This served him well for grouping late 19th century sound reproduction technologies into a single category, but with respect to this podcast, it's not so useful for identifying what was distinct about the phonograph itself. Again here, a dichotomy between an embodiment and disembodiment of sound, if not perfect, does at least point towards the specifics of the talking machines, as they were called. Well, here we are, back at our front door. I haven't been looking back, so I hope you're still there, and I hope you've enjoyed the tour. Kick off your shoes, make yourself a drink, and let me put on a record. This podcast is about listening to the past, after all. So before we venture back to phonographic times, let's check out another one of Scott's most interesting phonograms. Again, this was sourced from our friends at firstsounds.org. And uh, let's remember again that playback technology didn't exist at that time, and that these are modern digital reproductions. The recording is from the 17th of April, 1860, and it's notable for being the earliest recording of spoken language where we are sure of the exact playback speed. So we know that the pitch of the voice is about right. Not that you'll be able to make out much, but for the record, the man is reading in French this excerpt from Ducey's Othello. So it must be that to this faithless rival give this diadem. In their cruel rage are lions of the desert beneath their burning lair. Uh, something like that. It's going to make even less sense than that, so don't worry about it. <laughs> So, that was English translated to French, recorded into soot, then translated back into English and reproduced by computer. And I think that's a nice place to stop. If you've been titillated by any of the themes of this episode, I highly recommend you explore the works of these truly masterful philosophers for yourself. There are many more books, thinkers, and writers I could and perhaps should have mentioned, although I hope in good time we'll give everyone their due. Also, please note that for you, dear listener, I've listed a fairly comprehensive bibliography on the website at noiseinthegroove.com. In the next episode, we'll return to that chilly December morning on the north coast of Wales as we continue our exploration of the initial impact of news of the tinfoil phonograph. As ever, if you have any comments or questions about anything you've heard in this episode, please post them on the website at noiseinthegroove.com. But for now, so long, and thank you for listening.